is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So we're going to turn our attention uh, back to Isaiah, and we're going to turn our attention to what he's going to say in verse in chapters 28 through uh, 39, and we'll finish the first half of the book of Isaiah this morning. That's a lot of chapters, right? 28 and 29, basically what he does is he goes back to his indictment of Israel and Judah. That they, they've done everything but follow the Lord. God created their nation. He made them. And uh, they have not followed him. In fact, the rulers have made a pact with death, probably a pact with someone to try to help them escape from Assyria. Assyria is now on Judah's border. And they've probably made a pact thinking that they're going to miss death. But God says that's not going to happen. And, but in the middle of all of this, he gives this promise. In, uh, in 28, 16, I believe it is. Therefore, the Lord said, look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone. Listen, a precious cornerstone that we just sang about. A sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. And I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the mason's level. In other words, they're putting their trust in other things like Egypt as we'll see in a moment. But God said, I've laid a foundation that you can really put your trust in. And of course, the New Testament tells us who that cornerstone is. That cornerstone is actually the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus. In 29 verse 13, uh, here's what he says about the Jews. He said, the, this people approach me with their speeches to honor me with their lip service, yet their hearts are far from me uh, and human rules direct their worship of me. Doesn't that remind you of something Jesus said? Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your heart and that which is detestable, that which is, uh, what does he say, that which is highly valued in the sight of men is detestable in the sight of God. And, and so we see this a lot. People, people honor God outwardly, but not inwardly. And that's what uh, Judah and, uh, and of course Israel, they're gone now by the time we get to this place. But that's what Judah is doing, he's saying. Chapters 33 and 35, again, it's the same message we've heard uh, over and over again, except this time it's directed at all the peoples, all the wicked of the land, I mean, all the wicked of the world. And it's basically, you know, God's going to judge not just Judah and Israel, but God's going to judge the entire world. And in the middle of all that, he's going to rescue his people. He's going to rescue his people. He's going to create a world for them that's forever. In Isaiah 33, verse 17, your eyes will see the king in his beauty, and you will see his vast land. He goes on to talk about the destruction of the evil. In chapter 34, verse 2, the Lord is angry with all the nations, furious with all their armies. He will set them apart for destruction, giving them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. I mean, this kind of gets gross. Their slain will be thrown out, and the stench of their corpse will rise. The mountains will flow with their blood, and all the stars in the sky will dissolve. The sky will roll up like a scroll, and its stars will all wither as leaves wither on the vine and foliage on the fig tree. Sounds like Matthew 24, doesn't it? It's apocalyptic language. It's talking about God's is, his destruction is going to be cataclysmic. That's what that means. In chapter 35, he says this about the Messiah's kingdom again. Tell everyone who is discouraged, be strong and don't, don't be afraid. God is coming to your rescue, coming to punish your enemies. The blind will be able to see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap and dance, and those who cannot speak will shout for joy. There will be a highway there called the road of holiness. In verse 10, they will reach Jerusalem with gladness. Singing and shouting for joy. They will be happy forever, forever free from sorrow and grief. That's what we talked about last week, right? The kingdom that's coming in all of its joy, in all of its banquet, in all of its no more death, in all of its no more sin, all of that kind of stuff. So that's what he's talking about. So all throughout these chapters, 28 even to the end, we have this, this intermix of God's going to judge Judah in Jerusalem for their sin. But yet there's the promise that one day he's going to rescue his people and he's going to give them a forever kingdom that'll never go away. God's going to judge all the nations of the earth, but his people, he's going to take all of them and he's going to give them a king who's going to reign over them. And there the lame will leap and the blind will see and the deaf will hear. 
Does that sound familiar to you? It ought to, because that's what Jesus told John when John was doubting. He said, remember, John said, are you really the one? And Jesus said, tell them that the lame are, are walking, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing. So the kingdom of God, hear me here. The kingdom of God started when Jesus came. The good news was that the king was here and the kingdom was beginning. And yes, we're part of the kingdom of God now. We are in his kingdom now. His, he reigns. But yet there's a fulfillment of his kingdom that's yet to come. And, and this is what Isaiah, I believe, is pointing to in, in some of these verses. Now, chapters 30 to 32 and 36 to 39 are going to deal with a very specific situation and how Judah faces it. And this is the threatened assault of Assyria on Judah. Now, let me give you a little bit of history, see if you remember this. At the beginning of Isaiah, we have Syria, not Assyria. We have Syria and the northern tribes of Israel coming against Judah and, his, and its king. At that time, it was King Ahaz. Remember this? And Ahaz is, is like, am I going to trust God? What am I going to do? And Isaiah is saying, trust God in the middle of all this. Assyria is threatening Syria and the northern tribes. They're probably trying to get Ahaz to join them. It doesn't really matter. It's a different time, different king. But the issue here at the, at these, in these verses of Isaiah, it's the same issue. Who are you going to trust in life? Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust your own ingenuity and your own thoughts and your own plans? Now, in chapters 30 and 31, we read that King Hezekiah and his leaders are heading south. They're going south down to Egypt to try to make an alliance with the king of Egypt because they believe the king of Egypt with all of his chariots is going to be able to save them from Assyria. So here's what Isaiah says to them in chapter 30. If you have your Bibles, woe to the rebellious children. This is the Lord's declaration. They carry out a plan, but not mine. They make an alliance, but against my will. Piling sin on top of sin. Remember, he's already been indicting Judah for their sin. He says, man, you're just adding to your sin by heading south to Egypt. Verse 2. Without asking my advice, they set out to go down to Egypt in order to seek shelter under Pharaoh's protection and take refuge in Egypt's shadow. But Pharaoh's protection will become your shame and refuge in Egypt's shadow, your humiliation. Chapter 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help to depend on horses. They trust in the abundance of chariots and in the large number of horsemen. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel. They do not seek the Lord. The Egyptians are mere humans. They aren't God. Their horses are made of flesh. They can't live forever. When the Lord shows his power, he will destroy the Egyptians and all who depend on them. Together they will fall. So here's Hezekiah, and we don't know if it's Hezekiah or his, his leadership board, his, what, his cabinet, you know, most likely, I'm sure he's involved in it. But uh, Isaiah says to them, don't go south to Egypt. Don't seek an alliance with them. Don't put your hope in them. Look to me, the Lord is saying. Now, chapter 36, when we get to chapter 36, things become intense. Now, let me tell you about 36 to 39. 36 to 39 are different than any other part in these first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah 36 to 39 are narrative, meaning that it's just a story. There's, there, I mean, we're going to hear from Isaiah and others in the story, but it's not Isaiah's prophecies. It's not his, it's not his word to the king. This is a story, 36 to 39, and it's intense. And it actually breaks the book. In other words, I don't know if you remember when we started Isaiah, we said Isaiah breaks into two parts, 1 through 39 and 40 through 66. This breaks the book, this narrative passage. This narrative passage is going to tell you everything. Let's begin reading in chapter 36. I'm going to read right much, so pay attention. Just listen if you want. Follow along in your Bibles. Here we begin, 36 verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, he's been king for 14 years, King Zennacherib of Assyria attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. And then the king of Assyria sent his royal spokesman along with a massive army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. The Assyrian spokesman stood near the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, Hilkiah 
who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joab, son of Asaph, the court historian, came out to him. So you need to get this picture. Jerusalem is a walled city. There is a large army. We'll see how large it is in just a few moments, but it's a large army outside the gates. They see them. And this one guy who is the spokesman for Assyria comes up to, to the walls. He wants to speak to them. And they send out these three guys that we just named to meet with him. Verse 4. The royal spokesman said to them, this guy from Assyria, tell Hezekiah, the great king, the king of Assyria says, what are you relying on? You think mere words or are strategy and strength for war? Who are you now relying on that you have rebelled against me? A little bit of history here. Hezekiah has quit paying his tribute to Assyria. And that's what's brought them down here. Look, you are relying on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of anyone who grabs it and leans on it. This is how Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is to all who rely on him. So he's guessing. Maybe he knows. Maybe there's been some evidence. He says, you're relying on Egypt. But let me tell you what Egypt's going to be to you. It's like a sharp spear. If you lean on it, it's going to pierce your hand. Verse 7. Suppose you say to me, no, we're not relying on Egypt. We rely on the Lord our God. Isn't he, this is the spokesman speaking, isn't he Hezekiah, the one who, I mean, excuse me, God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you are to worship at this altar? Now, obviously, he, he misunderstands. He says, isn't, isn't Hezekiah the one who removed all the altars of your God? Yeah, really, Hezekiah was a good king, and he removed the altars of the false gods in the land. That's what he had done. But this guy doesn't really understand that. He says, man, didn't, didn't Hezekiah remove the altars of your God? Verse 8, now make a deal with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to supply riders for them. He's making fun now. How then can you drive back a single officer among the least of my master's servants? How can you rely on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? He's, he's making fun of them. I'll give you, I'll give you how, how many does he say? I'll give you 2,000 horses if you could find riders for them. And, and he says, and my least, the, the servant of my least dude, right? He can go in and whoop y'all. That's what he's saying. They're not like him. I'm at verse 11. And um, oh, I'm sorry, verse 10. Have I attacked this land to destroy it without the Lord's approval? The Lord said to me, attack this land and destroy it. Now he's claiming that God sent him. And of course, there would be some truth to that. God's been talking about how he's sending, he has sent forces against his people as judgment. So Eliakim, now verse 11, Shebna and Joah uh, said to the royal spokesman, hey, please keep your voice down. Please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak in Hebrew within the earshot of the people who are on the wall. You get that, right? That makes sense. Hey, we don't want them hearing what you're saying. But the royal spokesman replied, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are destined with you to eat their own excrement? and drink their own urine. And then the royal spokesman stood and called out loudly in Hebrew. So not only he ignored them, starts yelling to the people on the wall. Listen to the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he cannot rescue you. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on the Lord, saying the Lord will certainly rescue us. The city will not, will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and surrender. Then every one of you may go eat from his own vine, his own fig tree, drink of his own water from his cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you by saying the Lord will rescue you. Has any one of the gods of the nations rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my power? Who among all the gods of these lands have rescued this land from my power? So will the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? Of course you get that, right? No God has stopped me. No God has whooped me yet. Your God's not going to save you. But they kept silent. That people on the wall kept silent. They didn't say anything because of the king's command. The king's command, don't answer him. And Eliakim, son of uh, Eliakim and Joab, or Joah and Shebna, they all went to Hezekiah and it says they tore their clothes and reported to him the words of the spokesman. 
So the spokesman is really kind of asking this rhetorical question. And it's the question that I believe we need to focus on this morning and drill down on. It's a good question. Who do you trust in? He's asking, he's asking them, and of course he's doing it with he's doing it with glee, he's doing it with sarcasm. What are you trusting in? Evidently, there's a letter from Zennacherib too, not just the spokesman. There's a letter that they hand to these men. They give it over to uh, Hezekiah. Here's what Zennacherib wrote to Hezekiah, chapter 37, verse 10. Don't let your God on whom you rely deceive you by promising you that Jerusalem won't be handed over to the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard that the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries. They completely destroyed them. Will you be rescued? Did the gods of the nations that my predecessors destroyed rescued them? Gozan, Aron, uh, uh, Rezeph, the Edenites, the Telesar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the city of Zepharvim, Hena, and Iva? Where, where, where are they now? They've all been destroyed. If you're thinking you can trust your gods, and Ekerob says you cannot trust your god, think about it twice. And when Hezekiah hears this, he's humbled. He's broken. He tears his clothes. He puts sackcloth on his head. And I mean, those are customs we don't understand, but they're ways of humbling yourself. They're ways of, of expressing grief. And the Bible tells us that he went to the temple to pray. Before he left for the temple, he sent a message to Isaiah. And the message to Isaiah is, will you pray for us too? Here's verse four. Perhaps the Lord, your God, will hear all the words of the royal spokesman whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God and will rebuke him for the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, Isaiah, offer a prayer for the surviving remnant. Pray for us. Hezekiah goes to the temple. His prayer is recorded for us in verse 16. You ought to love his prayer. Lord of armies, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely. Lord, and hear, open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Zennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of the Assyrian have devastated all the countries and, and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but made with wood and stone by human hands. So they have destroyed them. Now, Lord, our God, save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God, you alone. Don't you love that prayer? It's an appeal to God to, to, to rescue his reputation from Zennacherib and all that Zennacherib had done. And God hears Hezekiah's prayer and God answers his prayer. Isaiah sends a couple of messages to Hezekiah. He says, God has heard you. God, God's heard the arrogance of Zennacherib. God's not going to let him destroy you. Chapter 37, verse 33. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. This is Isaiah's message to one of them, to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city, shoot an arrow here, come before it with a shield, or build up a siege ramp against it. He will go back the way he came. He will not enter this city. This is the Lord's declaration. I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Here's the second message, 37.6. Tell your master, the Lord says, don't be afraid because the words uh, you have heard with which the king of Assyria's attendants have blasphemed me. I am about to put a spirit in him and he will hear a rumor and return to his land where I will cause him to fall by the sword. Then there's a commentary on what happens. Can I read it to you? Verse 36, I didn't write the chapter down. I don't know if this is 37 or 38. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 Assyrians in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So King Zennacherib of Assyria broke camp and left. He returned home and lived in Nineveh. One day while he was worshiping the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adremelech and Zerezer struck him down with a sword, escaped to the land of Ararat, and then his son Esharhaddon became king in his place. Two of his sons killed him. Uh, there is some, I don't remember, the, I didn't write it down, but there is some historical commentary. He got message from back home, which caused him to go home. He left, and when he left, God kills 185,000 of uh, his men in the army retreats. Chapter 38 finds Hezekiah dying. That was all chapter 37, I'm sorry. 
Chapter 38 finds Hezekiah dying. Uh, Isaiah tells him, get your, get your house in order, you're going to die. And uh, Hezekiah prays, verse 3, Please, Lord, remember how I've walked before you faithfully and wholeheartedly and have done what pleased you. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. God hears and answers his prayer, actually rescues him, gives him a supernatural sign that what he says is true. Isaiah goes to him and says, you're going to be given 15 more years because God has heard your prayer. He's going to give you 15 more years. And, and, and the rest of that chapter is a, a praise song that Hezekiah writes, basically saying, God, thank you. In the pit, I would never have been able to praise you, but I am going to thank you and praise you and make your faithfulness known. Now, Hezekiah was a man who loved the Lord. and He trusted the Lord. He wasn't a perfect man. In chapter 39, we find a group from Babylon coming to him. This is all historical narrative, and I'm almost finished, and we're going to drill down in just a second. But uh, in, uh, in, in chapter 39, this group comes from Babylon, and he shows them everything, all his money, all his palaces. And Isaiah comes to him, and he says, hey, that group of people, who were they? And he tells them, they're from Babylon. He said, what did you do? He said, I showed them everything that I have. And Isaiah says this. Look, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all your predecessors, all that they've stored up uh, until today will be carried off by Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants who come after you, whom you father, they'll be taken away and they'll become eunuchs in the palace of uh, the king of Babylon. That might be a reference to Daniel, by the way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, uh, and Hezekiah, um, that's not gonna ha- it's not going to happen because he showed them around. It's going to happen because Judah's going to be rebellious to God, right? It's not going to, that, they're not going to be carried away and all that's going to, that Isaiah says is going to happen. It isn't going to happen because Hezekiah showed them that stuff. He's basically just saying, you know, this is what's going to happen with those people that you showed around. Now, uh, there's one more, one more thought I want to t- talk about here uh, before we go back. And that is that then uh, Hezekiah thinks to himself, and here's his response to Isaiah, and I didn't write the verse. You can find it. It's probably eight or nine. The, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. And then it says, you see what it says next? For he thought there will be peace and security during my lifetime. And, and I guess we can all be like this, right? All he cared about was himself. He just got told that his grandkids and, you know, at some point, his land is going to be devastated and destroyed. And his only thought is, oh, thank God it's not going to happen when I'm alive. He doesn't care about anyone else. Can I tell you, you know, you know, Hezekiah loved God, but Jesus makes a difference in our life because he gives us a, his spirit. And he gives us his spirit and he changes and there's a transformation, there's a regeneration that takes place in us through the spirit that makes us different. And we live an other's kind of life. And I just want to point it out, man. It's just not there in Hezekiah. All he cares about is himself. Now, let's go back a few minutes. Let's go back a little bit. And uh, I want to talk about the central truth, I think, of, of this story. You know, when Micah did, uh, was it 11, 13 through 24, I think it was. Remember, he said, there's one central thing that sticks out. It was pride. There's one th- central thing that sticks out in this story. And it's this, that you and I need to trust the Lord. You and I need to trust what God says, not trust our ingenuity, not trust our plans, but we need to trust the Lord. And the real battle that Hezekiah fought, now listen carefully, the real battle that he fought wasn't with Zanacharib. The real battle was, am I going to trust the Lord when I've got this massive army that's already taken some of my cities? Am I going to trust the Lord or do I, do I need to figure this out? Because Isaiah had already been speaking for God. Isaiah had already said, don't do this, trust me. That was his message. Now, I'm not, I'm not honestly sure whether Hezekiah actually listened to Isaiah. I don't, I don't really think he did. I think he made a pact with Egypt, you know, um, but God's still going to have mercy on him. Do y'all remember the story? I've told it a bunch about the guy who falls off the cliff and he's sliding down. And he grabs the bush, right? And he's hanging over the edge. And he yells up, help, help. And finally a voice from the heaven says, I'm here. And, uh, and he says, who is he? He says, I'm God. And he says, help. He said, I'll help you, but you got to trust me. You remember this story? And uh, he, uh, he says, I trust you. Well, then fine, let go of the bush and I'll save you. There's a long pause. And he says, 
Is there anybody else up there? That's kind of how we are, right? Trust the Lord. But Lord often asks us to let go of what we're holding on to, to trust him. And that's kind of what he was asking Hezekiah to do. And let go of Egypt. Let go of your plans to save yourself and trust that I'm going to do it when there's absolutely no human evidence, you know, for, for that. Let me talk for just a moment. What does it mean to trust what does it mean to trust? Here's a Webster's Dictionary. I'm not, I, I hope this is going to be really helpful to you. Okay, so, so hang with me. Here's a Webster's Dictionary of trust. It's a firm belief or an assured reliance in the character and ability and strength or truth of someone or something. To trust is to have confidence in something, a dependence on something future or contingent for the future, to hope. Now, in our story, this spokesman for Zennacherib speaks to people on the wall, speaks to Hezekiah. He says, what are you trusting in, Egypt? He says, don't trust in Egypt. They're not going to help you. He says, and here's the part where it gets really bad. He says, are you trusting in God? We've defeated every other God. Don't trust in God. And even the letter from Zennacherib said the same to Hezekiah. Don't trust your God because I've defeated every other God. Why would you trust in God? But God spoke through Isaiah and said, God is going to rescue you, not because you're so wonderful, but he's going to rescue you for David's sake. He's going to do it. And Hezekiah now has this battle. Can I trust the prophet of God? Can I trust Isaiah that he really is speaking for God or that God really said this? And maybe it's because it's his last resort, but Hezekiah does trust the Lord here uh, at the end. He's willing to trust him. And so if I could for a few minutes, I, I want to talk to you about trusting God when Zennacherib is at your door. I, I want to trust, I, I want to talk to you, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you, I want to help you trust God when Zennacherib's army, armies are just all around your house. In case you don't get my metaphor, here's, here's what I'm trying to say. I want to urge you to trust God when they're about to foreclose on your house and you don't have a dime. I want you to trust God when the cancer's back for the third time and it seems like the, um, the chemo's not doing anything to defeat it. I, I want you to trust the Lord when your son's on drugs and he's overdosed a couple of times and you just can't seem to get him off of those. I want you to trust in the Lord the rest of your days. But here's where the rub comes in. Follow me, because this, this is a logical progression and if you miss part of it, you're not going to follow me. But so... What is it that we need to trust God for? I'm, I'm asking you to trust God when Zennacherib is at the gate. What, what, do you, what do you trust God for when that's the case? Well, whatever he said, right? That's what I need to trust him for. I need to trust whatever God has said, whatever God has committed to. Would you agree? That's what I need to trust God for, whatever he said and whatever he's committed to. All right, but here's, where the, here's the, what has he said? when Zennacherib is at the gate? What has he said to you when your Zennacherib is at the gate? What, what has he said that he will do? Now, uh, I, I, I believe that we kind of believe generally that God has committed himself to rescue us every time there's difficulty at the gate. Every time there's a hardship, every time there's an unfairness, every time there's a suffering, every time there's a hardship or a sorrow, we, we believe, we tend to believe that God has promised that he's going to deliver us from, from that Zanacrib at the gate. Every time. I might lose some of you here. I hope not. But I'm going to say to you, I don't believe God has ever promised that. I don't believe God has ever, ever promised that he is going to deliver us from the immediate Zennacherib at the gate. I don't believe he's universally promised that. I don't believe he's personally promised that to anyone, that he is going to deliver you when Zennacherib is at the gate. Now, please hang in there with me. Don't write me off if you disagree. I, I cannot tell you how many people I've met over the years that have abandoned their faith because they were taught every time Zennacherib's at your gate, you trust in God and he's going to deliver you. And what happened is Zennacherib came in like a flood and wiped them out. And they're like, hey, God, you, you might be real, but you don't care about me. You don't know me. You don't love me because you let Zennacherib come in on me. 
When everybody else has promised that, hey, if, if you just did this right, if you just did this or whatever, God's not going to let that happen. I know too many people who have abandoned their faith because of that. It, just a dear friend of mine, this past week, we're, we're ta- we haven't talked in years. And this friend tells me that they're no longer, they're no longer walking in faith. Or maybe that was last week and I already told you about it. But it just, it just and I'm like, I couldn't believe it. And, and this thing was, when I call down fire like Elijah did, remember that? The, the battle of the Baals and Elijah? I call down fire and my God's like the Baals. There's no fire. There's nothing coming down to destroy the enemy. And that's why this person is abandoning faith. And I, and I, and I get that, but I wonder, I wonder, have we taught everybody that every time you got a problem... God's going to rescue you from that immediate problem. So I want to challenge you this morning. I want to give you, not challenge you, I want to give you, I want to give you four promises of God that when Zanakrib's at your gate, you need to to trust God with these four things because he's promised them. And I don't believe any of you could say that in the very least, he's not promised these things absolutely. So here's the first one. Trust that God isn't out to lunch. Trust that he knows that Zanakrib is at the gate. The deist, the deist is someone who believes that God exists. He might even believe in a God with a big G, that there's just one creator. But they say he put everything in motion and then he left it and he's not involved. And he doesn't know. He's not there. He's out on vacation. I'm asking you to trust God and not the deist. And I'm asking you to trust God that he knows about this thing that's happening to you that is so hard and, and that it's at the gate right now and, and you need help. He knows. Matthew 10, verse 26, excuse me, verse 29. This is Jesus, our Jesus speaking. He says, for only a penny you can buy two sparrows and yet not one sparrow falls to the ground without your father's consent. As for you, even the hairs on your head have been counted. So do not be afraid. You are worth much more than many sparrows. Do you think if God knows the amount of hairs on your head that God doesn't know about what's happening to you in this hardship that's at your door? You think he doesn't know that? He absolutely does not know that. King David said in Psalm 139, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You understand my thoughts from far off. You know my fear, he's saying. You understand what I'm thinking. You search my path and my lying down and are aware of all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it fully. You put yourself behind me and before me and you keep your hand on me. I'm asking you this morning to always trust that God knows and that God is not unaware, that God is not oblivious. He's not oblivious. You say, well, why does that that matter anything that God knows? Well, I can't speak for you. I'll speak for myself. But when, when something is, is, when I'm under pressure and stuff isn't going well and I'm hurting, you know what? If I've got a dear friend and I tell them what's happening to me and maybe they can do something, but maybe I know they can't do anything, you know, it just means the world that my friend knows what's happening to me. And I want you to know God knows And I want you to trust that God knows. Now, the second thing, it's not just that God knows. Trust that God isn't indifferent, that he cares for you. And and I I probably don't even need to tell you this, but he does. And it's so funny. Did you look at my notes, Michael Tuck? Where are you? Did you look at my notes? So, uh, yeah, I'm like, man, these songs, I got to use all my notes because he's got all these songs for my notes. So here here it says, for God so loved the world, right? For God so loved the world. We all know that, don't we? God so loved the world. But does God love Tim? When Tim doesn't have a job anymore, does God love Tim? Does he care about Tim? Tim's got a job now. But not too long ago, he didn't have one. And it was a season of difficulty. God actually cares about me personally. He doesn't just love the world. He loves me. He knows me. He knows Jimmy by name and he cares for me. And I want you to trust that God knows you by name. Peter says, encouraging his readers, cast all your cares on him. Cast your Sennacherib at the gate on him. Why? Because he cares for you. 
Because he knows. He doesn't just, nobody cares for you. And I've been following Jesus for a long time. And you know what? It was early on in my, in my following Jesus that I discovered something that if you haven't discovered it, man, I hope you'll discover it today. Bad things in your life, tough things in your life, difficult situations in your life, they are not an indicator as to whether God loves you or not. Those things have nothing to do with whether God loved you. God loves you, and the way you know God loves you is because he sent Jesus, and Jesus died for Jimmy. Jesus died for you. Put your name there. He cares about, he cares about you. But I, but I know Jesus loves me, Jimmy, specifically, personally, pers- uh, specially even. You know why I know that? Because I look at Jesus, and he loves the individual. And so he tells stories like the prodigal son, the young son who's all messed up in his head. And he just wants to get away from his dad. He hurts his dad immensely, and he runs off and wastes all kinds of money. And finally, when he's, at, he's destitute, and he says, man, my dad's servants are better I dare have a better place than me. I'm going home just to be a servant. You remember the story, right? What's dad doing? Looking, every day looking, and then running. You see, because he cared about the, 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 the son, the young son. He cares about you. He cares about, he cares about you. Trust me, God loves you personally. I have a story that I've told often. Forgive me, it's, it's one of those indelible stories that just will never go away. And it, I think about it often. But when Shep died, we were going to bury him on that Friday. Couldn't because of the hurricane, the water table. So we had to bury him on Wednesday. And, uh, and it was just going to be Ann and me and my mother. And we were going to, you know, my kids were not coming. It was just going to be the three of us, along with the funeral home, burying Shep. And I can remember being there in the graveyard and looking up. And there across the, across the cemetery was my brother. And my brother knew, and my brother cared, and, and, and he, he was there with me, and he showed me, I mean, I cried this morning. I don't know why I'm not crying now. I want to cry, because it was so meaningful to me, but then tears aren't coming. But I'm telling you, that's a picture of God. My brother wasn't there to help me bury Shepherd necessarily. He ended up helping me carry the casket, but, but he was there because he knew and he was there because he cared. And I'll never forget. To me, that was, in that moment, that was a picture of God for me. God knowing and caring. Here's the third thing. I want you to trust God always. When Zanakrib is at your gate, trust that God isn't weak and that he empowers you. Trust that the Lord knows your troubles and cares for your troubles, but that he is going to give you power in that moment. He's going to give you grace and sustain you. He's not going to abandon you. He's going to help you in that minute. Trust God that he is there to help you face Sennacherib and fight against Sennacherib, whatever it is. He's there to help you and even carry you if need be. Again, I know I'm full of cliche old stories today. Remember the footprints in the sand? Two guys walking along the beach and asking God, hey, God, and he's looking at his life on the beach. And he says, God, I'm looking at that, and you're walking with me until it gets really difficult, and then you disappear. Why do you leave me when it's, why do you leave me when Zanacarib is at the gate? And, and, and Jesus says, man, that's not when I left you. That's when I carried you. And, and that's what I want you to trust today, that God will carry you. Here's a promise from the Lord. Who then can separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble do it? Hardship or persecution or hunger or poverty or danger or death, as the scripture says? For your sake, we are in danger of death at all times. We are treated like sheep that are going to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. For I am certain that nothing can separate us from the love, neither from his love, neither death nor life, angels, Or other heavenly rulers or powers, neither the present or the future, neither the world above or the world below. There is nothing in all creation that is able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to trust that God is going to be there for you and empower you in that fight. He's going to give you what you need. Do you remember when Paul is is struggling with something? We don't know what it is. People thought it was his eyesight, but he tells the Corinthian church, I prayed. I prayed three times, God, take this thorn from me. 
And Paul says, every time God said the same thing, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And we pray, God, remove Zanakarib from the gate. God, deliver us from Zanakarib. And God says sometimes, nope, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to walk you with it. I'm not going to leave you. You're going to conquer in the midst of this. Last, trust that God is, trust that God is able. He rescues. And here's where it gets tricky. It gets tricky because if you're, if you're tracking with me, I hope you are, then you're going to say, well, Jimmy, you're contradicting yourself because you started off saying that we can't promise anyone that God's ever going to deliver them from any specific thing all the time. And here you're saying, trust that God is able, that he rescues, right? So isn't that, a, isn't that just contradictory? Um, no, it's not. God has never promised to deliver us from every immediate Zanakrib at the gate. But listen, he has promised that he will, in the end, deliver us and rescue us. In fact, can I say this? Your troubles may leave you in such a hard place. They may leave you with a paralyzed body your entire life. Johnny Erickson Tata, right? Little girl, young girl, diving off a boat, paralyzed. Oh God, you know how many people prayed for her? Oh God, oh God, heal Joni, heal Joni. People even told her, if you just believed, you could get up out of that wheelchair, Joni. She was left paralyzed and been paralyzed her entire life. But you know what? She would tell you, her, my God's grace has been sufficient to me. May leave you broke, may leave you homeless, may leave you dead. But in the end, God's going to rescue every single one of us. When Zanakrib's at your gate, yeah, he may come in like a flood, but you know what? In the end, God's going to rescue you. Romans 8, 28. We know that God, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are, he predestined us to be made into the image of Jesus. And then he tells us what that is, and we tend to miss it. He says, the firstborn among many brethren. Paul would say of the firstborn, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first to be resurrected. Here's what, here's what Paul is saying to us. Listen, God has caused all things to work together for good for us because one day he's raising us up to be a part of his kingdom. And if you get sawn in two... If you die because of your faith in Christ, if you die because something happens to you or your life is, is man, it hurts because you've had so much. Listen, God is going to rescue you. Maybe not in the media, in the immediate, but he will rescue you. Now, if you want to disagree with me, and I hope you don't, I hope you see what I'm trying to say. Hebrews 11 is a great picture for us because it's the hall of faith. And here's what it says, verse 32, listen. What more can I say? Time is too short, the author writes, for me to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. How about that for Zanakarib at your gate, right? You're down in the lion's den with hungry lions and God doesn't let them eat you. Quench, quench the raging fire. I'm sure that's talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Escape the edge of the sword. Gained strength and weakness. Became mighty in battle. Put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead. Uh, raised to life again. Man, isn't that awesome? God rescued you when Zanakrib is at the gate. That's awesome, right? But then there's many more. Listen as it continues. Other people, on the other hand, were tortured not accepting release, so they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they died by the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. God didn't rescue everyone like he did the first half he didn't rescue the second half. But did you notice why they were willing to endure even though he didn't rescue them from Zanakarib, so to speak? 
In verse 35, it says, other people were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. In other words, so that they might obtain to the resurrection from the dead where God is going to rescue us forever. Where there will be a banquet and no more death and no more sorrow and no more. He will rescue you and you'll never die again and you'll never be tormented again. And Zanakarib will never be at your gate again. Never. He will rescue you. So how do we live trusting God? I want you to trust those four things, but how do I live trusting those four things? Here, here, I got two things. Live trusting God's love and power, even looking to him to rescue you today from your trouble, but know his promised ultimate resurrect, I mean, rescue is on the day of resurrection, on the return of Jesus. And I want to give you an example. Daniel and his friends, or Daniel's friends are the example on how to live like this, right? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're facing their Zanacharib and they're trusting in God. You remember what they said to the king? They said, King, God is going to rescue us. So they live in this expectation that God is going to rescue us. And you know what? I think we need to, I'm not trying to say don't live with that expectation. Live with it. Hope in it. Look to God for it. He is able. He's able, right? But here's what I'm saying. They even, I'm getting goosebumps. This is what they say. But if he doesn't, we still trust him. We still trust him. And so I tell you, listen, I mean, praise God, God rescued you. You know, praise God. But he there's other people who didn't rescue Adam's mother, right? Didn't rescue Adam's mother. They love the Lord too. So you see, God doesn't always deliver us from Zanacarib at the gate, but he will always rescue us. But live, live like that. Live trusting God, but know in your heart. But God, if you let Zanacarib in, I don't care. I'm still trusting you. I'm still going to love you. And then here's the last thing, live moving forward. Trust God and keep living and keep pressing on in life. Don't give up. Don't, don't, don't give up. Keep pressing on and loving Jesus and living for Jesus in life. That, that's what it means to trust God. It means that I trust him when it's really bad and the pressure's on him. My knees are buckling and I don't think I can handle it anymore. But I just keep pressing on because I'm trusting, I'm trusting God. I want to end reading you just a, a, an excerpt from one of the chapters of David Lane's book. Now, David Lane wrote a book called The Sunday Scaries, and he had, had a chapter on trusting God. And as I was working this week, I remembered it, and I want to read you an excerpt from it. And actually, I want to tell you this last point, I'm getting it from David, because it's the point of his, uh, uh, of his devotional thought. Let me just read it, and then we'll be finished, okay? What does it actually mean to trust God? It's one of those phrases that is so worn and overused that it has lost its meaning. People use the phrase with good intentions, wanting to comfort friends and loved ones in challenging times. But the phrase often comes off as a shallow way to dismiss suffering. Trust God can be a robotic response to very real struggles set out of duty rather than genuine concern. Despite the phrase's baggage and misuse, we shouldn't get rid of the term. Its heritage is too rich. Rather, let's take a moment to translate what seems like an ethereal sentiment into an earthly reality. In the simplest terms, to trust God means to move forward. Trusting God is a posture of the mind, accepting life's circumstances as they are, and choosing to continue onward. To trust God is to confidently see and rest in the reality, using our will to engage with it earnestly. Trusting God doesn't mean being happy about life's circumstances and seeing everything through rose-colored glasses. It's not to hide from our misery, pain, or uncertainty, but to see them as they are and face them head on. To trust God is to bear the burden of being while actively convincing ourselves of the truth that we are loved by God and that, his, that this life is grace and to hope that there is something more at work. When we trust God, we are choosing to be honest. We're choosing to surrender wishful thinking and embrace what is actually happening in our world. 
Too often people think that trusting God is a kind of escape from reality, a way to ignore life's struggles, a slogan to relinquish us from responsibility. If we all just think about trusting God and center our minds on those two words, maybe the earth will stop warming. Maybe the hungry will be fed. Maybe the problems in a broken marriage will, will work out. This understanding is fed by the damaging tenants. Well, let me skip that chapter. So practically, I mean that part. So practically, now I'll read it. I'm sorry. I was going to skip that, but I decided not to. This understanding is fed by the damaging tenets of dualism, the belief that God is separate from here and the here and now, that God is only concerned with us saying empty words to get us to an esoteric heavenly realm somewhere up in the sky. But this belief only harms humanity and the world we inhabit. To trust God here and now means faithfully believing that God is actively present here and now, and that God, the same God, wants to work with us and in us to care for the world and the beautiful people in it. Trusting God means seeing clearly and taking action to imitate Christ's trek to Calvary, carrying the cross, consciously aware of the burdens this life necessitates, and choosing to take the hill anyway. So practically speaking, how do we learn to trust God? The same way we learn to trust anyone else in our life. We get to know God. How do we get to know God? We pay attention to the world around us because God is in the world around us. We read, we write, we work, we love, we eat, we, we make decisions, we have hard conversations, we surf, we teach, we hike, we camp, we serve, we draw, we live. So go pay attention, move forward, trust God. A hero is someone who wakes up and does it again, said Pete Bowell, pastor of Hope Church. Now I'd add something to what David says here at the end. How do we get to know God? I agree with him. We get to know God as we live in our life looking to him. But we also get to know God in his word. We get to know God in his church. We get to know God through his people. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.